you have your Bibles, I'll go ahead and ask you to turn to First Peter, First Timothy, chapter two. Um, Brian, can you do? I think that monitor. Can you mute it? I can hear that static. And I don't think I'm able to control it, Brian, today. But we'll see. We'll find out. Sometimes I can control the slides up here. Sometimes I can't. Technology, it's a, it's a wonderful thing um, when it works. Um, so we've been in a series um, on elders, and we've been looking uh, over the last few weeks on the necessity of elders, the qualifications of elders, uh, the training of elders, the shepherding of an elder, uh, the honoring, appointing, protecting, and rebuking of elders. We've kind of covered um, the whole gamut. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the chief elder, which will be in Revelation chapter 1, where we're looking at Jesus Christ as the head of the church. And we're going to look at the picture that John gives us in Revelation 1 and understand what Jesus' role is and, and how is he working right now within the church. But today, one of the questions that inevitably, inevitably comes up when we talk about elders is, can women be elders? And so we're addressing that today. And, and if you know, if you've been here, we... We don't really shy away from most topics here where we cover everything, and so we want to, to look at what God's Word has to say about this. I don't want you to walk away saying, well, this is what Nick thinks, and so therefore we do this, but we want to say, what does the Bible say? And that's what we want to walk away with is, what does God's Word say? And so when we come to this topic about men and women in roles within the church, uh, there's really two positions that are taken, and I put these up on the screen. I believe, I think they're also in your, your, uh, your handout. Yeah, for some reason, Brian, I get nothing today, so um, I think there's a lot of slides, so we'll just hope that we get through them all. Um, there's complementarian, there's complementarian, which says men and women are created equal, but they have different roles. They complement one another. Uh, and so this position would be the historical position of the church uh, for pretty much the, the 2,000 years of the church. And uh, so this would say that uh, women are not to be elders. There's another position, the egalitarian position, which in essence says men and women are created equal and they have the same roles. And so this one would be relatively a new position coming from the 1960s, uh, since about the sexual revolution, and we have seen that arise um, in the last uh, 40 years or so. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to look and see what God's Word says, and, and what our church holds is a complementarian position. So in short, I'll tell you what we believe, and then we'll, we'll go through why we believe it. Um, we do not believe women can be elders, and, and we'll walk through um, why we actually say that, but what does it matter? Is it really a big deal? Like, do we really need to divide on this issue? Can't we agree just to disagree? Um, there might be more at stake than what you realize. There might be more at stake than what you realize. And so what I want to do is I want to give two pictures. And, and it's, it's important that we understand pictures in the Bible. All throughout the Bible, there's pictures, right? Uh, you, you start in the beginning of the Bible, there's a rainbow, and that's a picture of what? Interaction. God's promise that he'll never flood the earth again, right? It's a beautiful picture. There's a picture of the priesthood, which takes us to Jesus Christ as our ultimate priest. There's the picture of the sacrificial lamb, which takes us to that Jesus is the 
ultimate sacrificial lamb. There's the picture of the temple and the tabernacle, which ultimately goes to show how the people of God are where God dwells in the New Testament. We become the living temple. There's the land in the Old Testament, which ultimately points to the fact that there's going to be a whole new heavens and earth where God will dwell and His presence will be with all of His people. Throughout the Bible, there's pictures. And the pictures are meant to communicate truth. So that's what we're going to see today. Um, Let me give two pictures to start out with. Uh, And this is up on the screen, Ephesians chapter 5. And this is, again, we're just kind of setting the stage as we get into 1 Timothy 2. Ephesians 5 says this, Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So what we see here is that wives submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. So the role, women have been given a distinct role of showing the world, of showing the church, the submission that the church has to Jesus. And men are are given a role of demonstrating, revealing the picture of the servant leadership of Jesus Christ. What we see is that even though men and women are created equal, there's distinct roles which they are given to live out for the purpose of communicating the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, we have another picture that's given. Paul writes, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So the first thing to notice here is that when we look at the Trinity, there's different roles within the Trinity. Don't know if you've thought about that before. The Father always has authority and always instructs the Son. The Son never instructs the Father. He never has authority over the Father. And so just as there are different roles within the Godhead, there are different roles within men and women, whether it's at home or within the church. And what we see is that the way a woman submits to her husband very much reflects the way Jesus submits to the Father. It's a picture of the Trinity. And so if we say, well, is it a big deal if we actually hold on to these pictures that are given to us? Well, they kind of are because they represent the gospel and they picture the, Trini- the, the way the roles function within the Trinity. They picture God, the different roles that men and women have because of the way God has made us. And so what we're going to look at today is, is we're looking at biblical womanhood. That's what we're going to call it, what, the complementary position. We look at biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. And one of these sermons, uh, we should spend a whole another one on just what does the Bible say about men. That would be a very profitable sermon for us. Um, but primarily today, simply because we're going to answer this question, we're looking at why does the Bible say what it does about women and elders. So I think the first fill-in you have is biblical womanhood reveals the submission of the church to Jesus as well as the submission that exists within the Trinity. To distort biblical womanhood is to distort the picture of the gospel that God has given for men and women to reveal through their God-given gender roles and to distort it would confuse the way we understand the Trinity. I want to read a quote from John Piper. John Piper has written um, quite a bit of literature on biblical womanhood and manhood. And in fact, uh, there are free PDFs, which I will put up on our blog this week, on several books that you can download for free. And you can look at just um, a great deal of other writing that has been put forth on these positions. 
But this is what John Piper says. In other words, the ultimate meaning of true womanhood is this. It is a distinctive calling of God to display the glory of His Son in ways that would not be displayed if there was no womanhood. If there were only generic persons and not male and female, the glory of Christ would be diminished in the world. When God described the glorious work of His Son as the sacrifice of a husband for His bride, He was telling us why He made us male and female. He made us this way so our maleness and femaleness would display more fully the glory of His Son in relation to His blood-bought bride. This means that if you try to reduce womanhood to physical features and biological functions and then determine your role in the world merely on the basis of competence, you don't just miss the point of womanhood you diminish the glory of christ in your own life true womanhood is indispensable in god's purpose to display the fullness of the glory of his son your distinctive female personhood is not incidental it exists because of its god designed relationship to the central event of history the death of the son of god you ever think of it that way He's saying the way that he has made us is beautiful. It's far more than just being a male and female, but it points to the glory of God. It points to the redemptive plan that he has set forth before he ever created. And simply by the way we live out the roles that we've been given as men and women, we reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we have to realize in society today, um, we're being told that you can choose if you want to be female or male. Society says that your God-given gender is optional now. What this means is that each person, in a sense, becomes their own absolute authority. You get to choose if you want to be male, female, both. Um, the options are there. And if you're at the stores, you, you see a lot of this today in the world. Individualism is trumping everything, meaning you get to do whatever you want. And I can't say anything about it because that's what's called the new tolerance. The new tolerance is not just that I tolerate what you believe, but I have to say it's equally as good as what I believe. That's the new tolerance, which is ludicrous. That's that's completely wrong. Nowhere do we see that in God's Word. History doesn't teach us that either. And so what we see in God's Word is a very different picture. The role of men and women is not something God has given us to redesign, but it's something for us to embrace and love. And so when we come to this passage today, like other passages, we have to be aware that our sin and our culture is going to affect the way that we read this. Okay, we, we have to be aware. Some of, some of you women right now are going, man, I do not like that we came today. Like, this is not the Sunday to choose coming. And some men are sitting here going, oh, this is good. Preach it, brother. I mean, we're going to hear more amens. But what we have to realize is that God's word is given to us that we would understand why we have been made, how we've been made, and what the purpose is. But our sin, your personal sin, my personal sin, and the way culture is communicating things right now is affecting the way we want to read that. An example of this is homosexuality. Within the church today, there's many churches that will say, well, actually, the clear teaching of the Bible, even though we clearly see that the Bible teaches against homosexuality, we don't believe that's culturally relevant anymore. We want to be culturally acceptable. We think that was just in regards to the first century. But now we've progressed. 
When the Holy Spirit inspired men to write this, maybe he wasn't aware of the progression that would take place. Maybe he was only writing it for a certain period of time, knowing that we would enhance the biblical word as we grow. And so what churches are doing now is they're saying, look, you can be homosexual and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, maybe God has made you that way specifically to glorify him that way. And what we have is that clearly goes against the teaching of God's word. And so we have to realize that when we come to certain texts in Scripture, this being one of them, texts on homosexuality, and there's, there's many types of them, we're going to, at times, want to push against them more violently. There's times when we read just about sin and we push against that. But when it definitely presses against things that our culture is communicating, this is acceptable. We might often find that we have believed more of culture than what we have thought. So I simply bring that up today that you would be aware where there's hesitancy in you. Let's come to the Word of God, see what the Bible says. Because again, it does not matter if I say, look, we should be complementarian. If the Bible says that that's not true, then don't believe it because I say it. What we want to do is walk away from the text every week understanding what the Bible says. Not what Nick says, not what any other elder says, but what the Bible says. So that's what we're going to do today. So I'm going to pray, and then, um, actually, let's read the passage, and then we'll pray. So I'm going to ask you, go ahead and stand. We stand when we read, simply as a picture of demonstrating that we acknowledge the authority of God's Word. Chapter 2, 1 Timothy, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let me pray. Father, give us humility today. Help us to understand your word. God, this is one of those topics that there's just parts that are inside of us that we just want to push against. Culture's pushing against us. We might not realize how much we've been influenced by culture, but Father, I pray that we come to an understanding of what you have said in your word and that your Holy Spirit conforms us to your word and we don't try to conform your word to us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you have given us, that we would know you, that we would understand the gospel, that we would understand the many pictures that you have given us through your word in creation, that we would better understand the gospel, that we would understand you and how we are to live and what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. God, we thank you how you have made men and women, and they're both beautiful in their distinct ways. We thank you how you've made us that we'd complement each other, that together we would glorify you in an amazing, beautiful way that, shite, that shouts in this world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Um, I don't always do this. I gave my wife my sermon this week, and I said, look at it. 
go through it. Tell me what you don't like. Um, tell me if I'm saying anything wrong. So, uh, so she is approved. <laughs> she went through here also. Um, but let, let's start off verse 8. The words every place refer to the gathered church. So either in Ephesus or the church in all the world. So Paul is saying, when we gather, when the church comes together, he's either talking about all the churches, when all the churches gather in all their places, or he's saying when all the house churches gather together in Ephesus, this is how we look. This is what we do. He's going to instruct how men and women are to act in godliness when they gather together as the church. So in verse 8, Paul's first going to address men, and then he's going to address women. I'm simply going to say what he says about men, and then we're going to move on. Paul addresses men, and he says they are to come together in purity, not causing strife and division. That's what holy hands represents. If you go to James chapter 2, where he says, or James chapter 4, it talks about having purified your hands, or having clean hands there. And it talks about throughout in the Psalms, having clean hands. Hands often represent purity. So he's saying, look, rather than coming together, men, to cause strife, to come together in unity, in peace, in gentleness. Um, then we move on in verses 9 and 10, and this is where we're going to focus because this is the question we're answering today, is what does God's word say about women and elders? Um, we see that Paul begins by talking about hairstyles, jewelry, clothing. Why? Why does he do this? Well, women were coming to the church, and they were dressing themselves in order to be seductive and sexual. They were looking like women on the cover of Maxim magazine, and they were not concerned with godliness, but rather satisfying their own desires. Now, wives were dressed in a way that did not honor their husbands, but rather showed off their own skin. So this is why Paul then says they should adorn themselves with, a, with what is respectable apparel, modest self-control. Verse 10, he says, they should adorn themselves with godliness rather than being concerned necessarily with what you wear, and we'll talk about that in a moment. We should be much more concerned with our godliness and how we're growing in our faith in Jesus Christ. This is the same argument that Peter makes in chapter 3 of his letter. He writes, do not let your adorning be external, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So again, he's pointing to the fact that women, we ought to be more concerned with godliness than the external adoring of our bodies. So what we have here is that women were gathering with the church and they were not coming to promote holiness. They were coming to distract men. And they were coming to show off their bodies. They were dressing like they were going on the red carpet to the Oscars. Um, so is Paul saying it's wrong for you to fix your hair? Most of you, looks like, have fixed your hair. Maybe all of you. Um, most of you. Many of you are wearing jewelry. Women, many of you have jewelry on today. Many of you are wearing nice clothes. Is this wrong? Is Paul saying you've done wrong? I mean, actually, Paul, Peter says don't adorn yourself externally. I Meaning don't wear clothes. That's not really what his point is. I mean, it's good that we're wearing clothes, right? I'm glad you're wearing clothes today. I'm glad most of you may have showered this morning. We're all glad about that. We're glad you're wearing shoes because that's a good thing. We're glad that you smell good. We're glad that you, you fixed your hair. So, so what's the point here? 
Paul's not necessarily saying it's wrong to get dressed up. It's not wrong to wear jewelry. In fact, when a woman puts on a wedding ring, isn't that a beautiful sign of submission and commitment to her husband? Is Paul saying, no, don't do that? Not necessarily. What we have, if, if you go to the word costly, it refers to extravagance. And what we have in Greco-Roman literature, extravagance was related to sexual seductiveness. So what we have is, is women not just dressing up, but they're overly dressing up. They're lavishing on all the jewelry. They're working their hair in a way that culturally was seen as an, as an act of seduction. Their motivation was to look at me. They were not gathering with the church for the glory of God, but for their own glory. So it's because of this, Paul says, we should be modest, respectable, humble. Paul is calling them to dress in a way that honors God, honors their husbands, and honors others within the church. I mean, think about this, Proverbs 31. We love Proverbs 31 woman, and verse 25 says, strength and dignity are her clothing. Isn't that what Paul and Peter are saying? Rather than being concerned, overly concerned, we'll say it that way, with how you look, strength, dignity, godliness is to be what we're concerned with how we clothe ourselves. Verse 30 in Proverbs 31 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A woman who fears God is to be praised. So the point is, and this I believe is the blank, biblical womanhood places hope in the gospel, not in physical beauty. Again, it's not wrong to have physical beauty. It's a beautiful thing to dress up. It's a beautiful thing to gather together, to look nice, to shower. We're all glad you did that today. And if you don't, we might let you know. But it's a good thing. But when we come together, our hope is the gospel. It's not about attracting attention to ourselves or to other things. And and let me say this. um, The woman who fears God and is rich in godliness is far more beautiful than the ungodly woman who wants to just to show off her skin. I hope you know that. Now, the, the, the culture will say different, but the message of the church that we need to, as women, be communicating to our, our, our children and our daughters is that godliness is far more important than showing the skin. It's far more important. And it's far more beautiful. Verses 11 and 12. Let's look at these. Paul now, he's dressed the first concern, how women are gathering, what they're looking at. But there's another concern also. Here Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So um, verse 12 is given to clarify verse 11. So when you have, um, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, automatically we go, what does that look like? What do you mean, Paul? And then verse 12 will um, explain more what that looks like. But first, notice that verses 11 and 12 begin with the word quiet. We have, let a woman learn quietly. At the end of verse 12, she is to remain quiet. Now, does this mean women are not supposed to speak? This is where some of the egalitarian position will push back and they'll say, you just don't want women to speak, you want to oppress them. But one of the things that we must do is every time we come to Scripture and we come to a hard portion of Scripture, what we want to do is we want to look at the context of the Scripture and then we also want to look at is there anything else in God's Word that would help us understand the teaching here? And if we went to other parts of the Bible, like 1 Corinthians, we would see that women are encouraged to prophesy. Women are encouraged to pray when they gather. In Titus chapter 3, 2, 
I think it's two. Uh, women are encouraged to teach other women. So the idea is not to be quiet. It's not that we're asking anyone to be mute, but rather the word actually is talking about um, being gentle, um, meekness, and not disruptive. Paul's emphasizing an attitude of submission, which he then goes on to say in verse 11, but with, um, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. He's clarifying, he's helping us understand what he's talking about there. Now let's just note what Paul is not saying, because this is often where Galatians will begin pressing on, and this is probably where some of you are going, I don't know if I like this teaching at all. He's not saying women are not to learn. Rather, he's actually encouraging learning. He's saying, let women learn this way. And he's not saying they're not to teach at all. Again, we've already referenced, Titus says women are to teach younger women. Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos. And what's interesting is Priscilla is mentioned first. That's strange. That would not happen typical first century writing. The man would always be written first. And in fact, usually the woman would not be mentioned at all. So the Bible is very progressive in that sense in first century, even mentioning the woman. We know that Timothy was taught by his mom and his grandma. So what we see is Paul is not commanding, not giving this command because of doctrinal incompetence or lack of gifting. That is not the case. And we must be clear as a church, as men, as women, that is not what we believe. We do not believe women do not have the competency to do this or the gifting to teach because we know there's many godly women who teach in amazing ways. What Paul is doing is he's placing boundaries on women, on where women are to teach and exercise authority. It's partly because of this prohibition that then in chapter 3, Paul's going to then go into the qualifications of who are the ones to teach and to lead within the church, which we did about that. That was the second sermon we did, the qualifications of an elder. So why are women not to be elders? We're given at least two reasons. Number one, throughout the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul's constantly referring to the home. By doing this, Paul's showing that the church is modeled after the home. If you look at chapter 3, where Paul talks about the qualifications of elders, notice some of the qualifications. They're to manage their household well. What they do in the home implies what they will do within the church. The home is a model for where we are to examine men that they would be qualified for leadership within the church. In chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Paul calls the church to treat each other like mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. He says we're family. And so he's structuring the church to function like a family, like a home. In chapter 3, verse 14, this is the key passage in all of 1 Timothy. This is the point of why he wrote the letter. And if you read, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave where? In the household of God. And then he goes on to say, which is the church of the living God. And then he'll say in verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. When Paul uses the word mystery in the New Testament, he's referring to the gospel. In the Old Testament, what was a mystery is now revealed in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is the way the church functions, 
the way we act reveals the gospel. And so throughout the letter, he's continuing coming back to the way the home operates is the way we operate within the church. When the church gathers, it supports the structure at home. I mean, think about this. What would happen if men are called to lead in the home, but when we come here, we flip-flop that lead, and all of a sudden now men are submitting to their wives? That would create confusion, disunity at times. And where does that line start? Is it... Glass double doors? Is it once you've reached the parking lot? Is it when you've left the house? Where does the roles change place? There would be great trouble in there, and we'd be constantly having friction on that, which is what exactly was happening with the false teachers. If we go to First First Timothy chapter six, there was quarrels, there was disunity, there was strife, there were causing friction within the church. And so, one thing Paul is doing is saying, "Look." When the church gathers, there's unity. And the way we have unity is by structuring it the way that God has designed the home to structure. Think about the way the Father communicates Himself to us. He is the Father. Jesus is the Husband. What are all these terms of? When Jesus says in John 14, where does He go back to? He goes back to prepare a place for us, a house for us, rooms for us. The Bible is filled with home-type terminology communicating to us. When the church gathers, we operate like a home. What do we become right now? Brothers and sisters in Christ adopted by who? The Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Throughout the Bible, there's the terminology of the home. Throughout the Bible, there is biblical familial language. To help us understand that the church, when we gather like this, we're family. And Jesus Christ is our head. Elders have been given to lead under Christ. The church as the bride of Christ. But there's another reason, and it's one we've already looked at. God has given distinct roles to men and women that pictures the gospel. When women submit to the authority of the men in the church, they're revealing the way the church submits to the authority of Jesus. Now we are not, we're not saying men are equivalent to Jesus. We're not saying that our authority, the, elder, the authority of a man is, is equal to that of Jesus, but it's a picture of that. We are not, I am not perfect. My authority is, is, is messed up at times. My wife helps remind me that at times. At times you will help remind me of that as we need to do with the elders, right? But it's a picture. And it seems to be that that is what Paul is getting at in verse 11. Notice, he specifically says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. He's highlighting the role, the beautiful God-given, distinct role that God has given woman to display the gospel in her life. So the point is, And I've added on to this, so there's a few extra words here. Biblical womanhood joyfully supports and submits to godly authorities, and this is the part that should be added on to that point, for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. Biblical womanhood joyfully supports and submits to godly authorities for the sake of the gospel. I was talking to another pastor this week, and he gave me an illustration which which I think was helpful. You can tell me later if you think it's helpful or not. Imagine a successful woman um, who's a doctor. She's a leading researcher in her field. She's created new revolutionary procedures. She's very looked after in her field, sought after. Um, Now imagine when she comes home to her husband, who her husband works at a factory. 
simply on the line. Um, who leads the household? What would the world say? Who leads the house? The wife would, totally. She's more educated. She possibly is more competent. Um, she's more respected because of simply her position that she has. She speaks possibly more eloquently. She maybe has more leadership skills. But imagine this. Imagine if when this woman who's very educated, very gifted, she comes home and submits to her husband. Imagine if when she is in public with the church or wherever she is, she defers to his leadership in matters. What would happen? Do you think people would notice? Do you think people would ask questions? Do you think there would be rumblings? Why does she do that? Why does that look like? Do you think ever one of her women would come to, come to her and say, why do, you, why do you let him lead? Again, this is not a hit on factory workers. It's simply there's clearly a difference in our culture of the way these positions would be held. But yet if she comes and she submits to him, it's going to give the opportunity of sharing the gospel because that's what her life is presenting. She's showing the picture of the submission of the church to Jesus. And so when she is asked, when, she, when people come to her, she's then given the, the beautiful opportunity of explaining the picture that she's representing of the way Christ has come to save a church and now the way the church has the beautiful role of submitting to the headship of Christ. The church is always asking um, in addition to this, I would say, one of the questions that, that gets asked a lot in church, and especially on the internet, is how do we keep our, our kids in church? you ever wrestle with that more? Like, kids seeming to, in this culture, in this day and age, as they get to high school, or as they get to college, that they're abandoning the church, right? That's a clear, I don't have to convince you of that. Um, why do you think that happens? Now again, we could almost apply this to every text. Um, we could always probably apply um, application of the text to keeping children in church. But, but I just want you to think, especially about this one. What if we obeyed the Bible here? What would that teach our children? If our children grow up for 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years, however long they're in the house, and they are continually faced with the picture of the gospel between their mom and their dad, of submission and authority, what would that teach them? It would surely teach them on how to submit to the commands of God through his scripture. It would surely teach them to commit to submit to Jesus Christ as their authority and the Father as the head. And it would teach the men on the beautiful role that Christ has of servant leadership. It would teach women the beautiful role of the church on submitting to that. It would also communicate the Trinity, right? Which we've already talked about. It would teach that there is great there's great beauty in the authority of the Father, but there's great beauty in the submission of the Son, which we'll look at later. I would go so far as to say that if more women, men and women within the church, we understood biblical manhood and womanhood, not only would we see our children stay within the church longer, but we would see more salvations today because the world would be noticing the picture a lot more. Just, just think about that. So we go to verses 13 and 14. Now Paul is going to give reasons why he wrote this. He's going to give specific reasons which are going to uh, reiterate a little bit about what we said and he's going to expound on them. In verses 13 and 14, we have the reason for the command. 
Notice he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, Paul. (laughs) What are you saying there? Well, he's rooting his argument in creation. Now see, the egalitarian argument will say, he's only speaking to a certain context at this point, and it doesn't apply anymore today. We've moved past this. Is it? Let's think about that. If Paul was addressing a specific historical situation that only applied then or in certain parameters, then he might say this. I do not permit an uneducated woman to teach. Okay, very clear. Possibly the women were there uneducated. I do not permit a woman who has been influenced by false teaching to teach. Okay, great. As long as we meet those parameters, she can teach. Or what about, I do not permit a woman to teach if it's culturally unacceptable. Well, at the present time, it would be culturally unacceptable for women to teach. Therefore, we, won't, we would prohibit women. But now, if we have an educated woman who's not influenced by, by false teaching, and in our culture it's acceptable for women to teach, then obviously this is an outdated argument. If Paul had used any line of thinking like that, we would apply it that way. But he doesn't. He refers to creation. He says, Paul, Adam was formed first, then Eve. When Paul looks at creation, he, inspired by the Spirit of God, sees a difference between male and female because of the order in which they were created. We can't miss that. He sees a difference there. Man was created to lead, protect, provide. And woman was to complement him by being his helper. This has nothing to do with categories like superior or inferior. And we know that when we go back to the Trinity. The Son always submits to the Father. The Father always has authority over the Son. Is the Son lesser God than the Father? No. He's not lesser. They have different roles in which they function. So when we come to male and female, we must, and we must shout this loudly because the world wants to distort what we're saying. We do not mean inferior, superior at all. Women have beautiful gifts and we need them. But we're talking about different roles that God has given to communicate the gospel to this world. Now then verse 14, Paul then goes on to say, and Adam was not deceived. Now this is interesting. Is Paul making a little jab here at women? Is he saying, not only were women made first, but if you remember... It was the woman who took the fruit. That's why women are not supposed to teach and have authority. Because she took the fruit. Is this a jab? No, not at all. Who did Satan go to? Did he go to Adam? He went to Eve. Now think about that. Did he simply just flip a coin that day? I'm going to go in the garden today. I'm going to deceive one of them. What would be the best way to deceive them? Would it be to go to the man who is called to protect, lead, and, and, and provide for the family? Or would it be to go and undermine the created role that God has given men and women? And I'll go to the woman and see if she will operate separate from her husband. Which one do you think there is? I don't think he's flipping coins here. He clearly undermines the positions and the roles that God has given men and women. And he's doing the same thing today, Right? I mean, our culture today is saying 
is pushing women to be out of the home and to pursue whatever job she wants. And while I would say there's much good that's been, that's been accomplished through feminist, the feminist movement over the last 30, 40 years, what I would say, it's often communicated that the home is no longer an honored place for a woman, and it says that submission is a four-letter word. That's what culture is doing. So uh, as complementarians, we're not saying women can't do various things, work outside the home and do other things, but what has happened with the egalitarian movement with the, with the movement of individualism that all began through the sexual revolution, is that the home is no longer an honored place. You deserve more. It's not a good place to be. You can do so much more. Eve was deceived by Satan and acted apart from her husband. But what did Adam do? Is Adam off the hook? No. We clearly go back to Genesis, and where is he? He's being lazy. He's doing nothing. What should he have done? He should have gotten up and killed the snake, right? He should have killed the snake. Now, there's another guy later in Scripture that comes and kills the snake, right? Who's that? Jesus. That's what Adam was supposed to do. But because Adam failed, we then have a second Adam, a greater Adam. We have Jesus Christ as the last Adam who comes and does kill the snake. So no longer would the people of God be led astray. So let's not think that Adam is off the hook. And the complementarians would never say that. So what we have here is Paul, in these verses, 13 and 14, is simply showing that when we do not embrace our divinely given gender roles, sin happens. That's the point of this. That's the point. He's not... He's not pointing at Eve. He's not pointing at Adam individually saying, well, this one's at fault, this one. He's like, no, when we abandon... Biblical womanhood and manhood, what we have is disaster, destruction, disunity, pain, strife. Which if you went to Genesis 3, all those things occur because of the curses that then come about. But then we have verse 15. And this one is strange too. This is a complicated text. And it says, this is where we have, oh, so the the point is, and this is the film, the abandonment of biblical manhood and womanhood results in pain, hardship, and destruction. That's the next point that we had. And we go on to verse 15. And it says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Huh. Does that mean women are all supposed to have children? And the only way you're saved is by having kids? No. Again, we always take the scripture as it is in the context that it's in. And when it's difficult... And we then zoom out farther and farther, and we want to make sure that we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Well, if we went to 1 Corinthians 7, and we read that Paul actually encourages singleness, would Paul do that if the only way women could be saved is through having childbirth? No. So then we have these two Scriptures which seem at odds with one another. So has Paul gone schizophrenic? It's, it's only through having babies that you'll be saved. But over here he's saying, eh, it's actually good if you don't have children. Happy single. Would he be condoning people not to be saved? No. So we have to, how do these come together in harmony? What we understand is that childbearing is being used by God as a way to refer to the unique role of women. Men can't give birth to babies. So he's saying, as you embrace the role that you have, representative of that would be childbearing, you will be saved. This is very similar. If you flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and Paul's instructing Timothy, 
to lead a godly life and to train others. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, meaning train yourself in godliness, train others in godliness. What happens? Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. So what Paul is saying, look, when you train yourself in godliness and others in godliness, you're going to have greater confidence of your salvation and you're going to grow in your sanctification. Same thing here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. By embracing, by women, embracing biblical women, he said you're going to have confidence of your salvation and you're going to grow in your sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. Which is why he then says, if they continue in faith, in love, and holiness with self-control. He's encouraging them to embrace biblical womanhood. Biblical womanhood, the point is, embraces complementarianism for the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. Now I imagine some of you are sitting here, maybe especially women, and you still maybe feel somewhat uneasy. You go, okay. So it seems like primary role of a woman is to have this submissive role when they come to the church, when they gather, and at home. But is that really a good thing? I mean, do, do we like that? So I just want to give two texts to show the power of submission. Two texts. Number one is 1 Peter chapter 3, and it should be up on the screen. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Peter says a woman will win her unbelieving husband to the gospel not by her words. It will not be by having a greater education. It will not be by forcing her to the church, forcing him to the church. It will not be lauding over her knowledge over lauding her knowledge over him but rather by submission. Submission is anything but weak. I hope you see that. He's saying, look, if you have an unbelieving husband, the role of submission that you have is so incredibly powerful that God will use that so you do not even need to say a word and God will save him. Now, this isn't saying every husband will be saved, but he's saying he uses submission in a powerful way to save unbelieving husbands. Do not underestimate the power of submissiveness. It is a beautiful, distinct role that while we all submit to one another in one sense, that women have been given to highlight the glory of God and the salvation of others. Second picture, or second text. Philippians 2, and this one's going to show um, the power of submission all the more. Philippians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 7. This is talking of Jesus. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our salvation, our hope in this world, our forgiveness, our adoption, it all comes through the act of the Son submitting to the Father. Do you see that? The fact that we can have forgiveness of sins is through the act of submission. Not only does Jesus submit to the Father, but he submits to the earthly authorities that he'd be put to death on a cross that we who believe in him would be saved. So when we think about submission, let's not think, 
of weakness. The world defines it in too weak of a way. It's diluted the power of the word submission. But the Bible, when we come to it, sees it as this powerful, amazing role that women particularly get to exhibit in their daily life. It's a beautiful role of highlighting the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must not settle for a lesser, distorted view of womanhood. Biblical womanhood reveals the love of Jesus to this world. Biblical womanhood is a picture of salvation. The world will try to cheapen it. But let us embrace what God's word says about it. Let me read a quote by Abigail Dodds. This is the quote at the bottom of your sheet. It says, A woman is a prism that takes in light and turns it into an array of greater, fuller glory so that those around her now see the rainbow that was contained in the beam. She constantly radiates reminders of God's faithfulness. She reads the black and white pages of the Word of God and takes on the task of living them out in vibrant hues for her children, her neighbors, and the world to see. When the Bible commands feeding, nourishing, training, and love, a godly woman sets to the task, enhancing and beautifying everything around her it's the power of biblical womanhood so to go back can women be elders no but this is not because they're not gifted it's not because they're not competent it goes back to the god god's created design that he has made men and women in a beautiful distinct role to reveal the gospel and to help us better understand our trinitarian god whom we serve the world says that we're out of date the world says we need to keep up with the times but what the world needs to see is the gospel. And one of the ways the world will see the gospel is when men embrace the calling that God has given them and women embrace the calling that God has given them and we live those before each other that the world would see. And I, let me encourage men. If we want to see biblical womanhood, let us demonstrate biblical manhood. Let us demonstrate what it is to love what it is to lead in a sacrificial way. I think a lot of us say, yes, we want the women to live in a certain way, but let's encourage them to do that through our lifestyle, through the way we live, by looking like Jesus. Now, the Bible nowhere says women only use this role if their men are being godly, or men are only to lead in a godly way if their women are godly lives. It's never contingent on the other person. I guarantee you it's a lot easier when we're both living our roles, and it's filled with a lot more joy. Women will want to embrace the role that God has given them when their husbands, when the men within the church are leading in a sacrificial way, demonstrating the love of Christ. So I want to encourage us, when we look at biblical women, this is not a charge. So, so women, pursue godliness, but this is a way for us as the church, men and women, to say, we're going to come alongside. We're each going to live out our roles, knowing that God will use that as a means of grace to spur one another on in godliness so men if we want to help women have confidence in their salvation to grow in their sanctification one of the ways we do that is to embrace the roles that god has given us which is why it would probably be very good to spend a whole sermon on biblical manhood and what does that look like in the bible we're going to uh, close i encourage you um you can text forth whatever questions you want. The team will come up, they'll do a song, then I'll come back and I'll answer uh, some of the questions that we can and um, we'll go from there. Let's pray. Father, Father, this is a hard topic. It's hard to hear. It's hard to listen to. Our sin inside of us wants to recoil. 
culture has recoiled. Culture says that we're out of date. The world says this is stupid. But God, I ask that you conform us to your word today. Conform us more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. God, may as men that we be here, may we pray for our wives. May we pray for the women in the church. And may we lead in biblical ways, helping them, guiding them, strengthening them. Lord, I pray for women that they would see the beauty of submission and that it is anything but weak, but it is powerful, it is beautiful, and it has been used throughout Scripture to not only bring about salvation, but bring you glory. So God, may women see that. May they embrace that on the beauty of it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made us in distinct, beautiful ways that brings you great glory. In your name, Jesus, amen. A couple of questions. Um, it's good to have questions on this. Is it appropriate for a husband and wife to co-lead or co-teach a Bible study? If so, what would that look like? Good question. Um, for one, the Bible doesn't give us all the scenarios of where a woman is to lead and where a woman is not to lead. We're given kind of the blanket statement, woman is not to teach or exercise authority over men. Um, so we have a situation like Apollos and, or Priscilla and Aquila where it seems like they work together and maybe even Priscilla was the leading teacher but we don't want to take that and just say, therefore, it's always okay for a husband and wife to co-teach. Um, that, doesn't, that, that would be taking a descriptive text and prescribing it over everything. And we don't want to do that. Um, one thing we want to do is when, when a man and when men or women are together is that clearly we're showing that the man is embracing the teaching role. So that's what we want to have. And personally, I don't think co-leading and co-teaching ever really works well. There's always one person who needs to lead. Um, so I think it's good for women to help. I think they're very viable, but I think the man needs to lead and teach in there. But I think that when there's a, a mixed group of men and women, there's discussion, there's talking. Um, but I think the man leads in that discussion. And I think the woman wants the man to lead in that discussion as she is helping him live out his calling. Um, but that's, those are hard. Those are hard, and how exactly do we live this out? Um, we have another question. Um, what about the fact that Deborah was a judge in the Old Testament? Great. So we have a woman leader in the Old Testament appearingly to lead the whole people of God. Why would we say that a woman can't be an elder? Well, if we go back to the book of Judges, it's not really a book of heroes, is it? It's a book of failures. The reason Deborah's leading is because there's no man to lead. Barak, the man who was supposed to lead, says, oh, I don't really want to lead. And so it's not an example that we want to take and say, well, because men failed, the woman stepped up, therefore women can lead all the time. But it's a description of, of God will use all people and many people. But it's not a validation to then say that women are, are to lead because it's really more of a failure of the men to lead in that story. Um, those are good questions. Um, where can women serve? <laughs> in a lot of places. So many places. And um, let's just think. We'll just go through them. Uh, children's ministry, women's ministry, hospitality, uh, music, youth, visitation, care, uh, writing, prayer, missions. And we go on. There's so many amazing places for women to serve. Again, the idea is not that we're limiting or trying to oppress or hold back, but we're trying to uphold the picture that God has given us. So when the church gathers, 
we clearly want to see that it's the men embracing the leading and the teaching of God's word. Um, Ephesians 5 says that both men and women are to mutually submit to one another. So I think the question then is, well, if we all mutually submit to one another, how is one greater than the other in the type of authority? Um, Well, if you keep reading and you go on, then it talks about wives submitting uh, to Christ or submitting to their husbands as, as the church does to Christ. Um, while, the, while Jesus does submit, in a sense, to the church and the fact that he gave his life, it's very different than the way that the church regularly submits to Jesus, isn't it? Like it's not the same type of submission. And so we would not say, while men submit and women submit, it's not the same type of submission. Both are submitting for the good of the other, but there's a different type of submission that's taking place there. Um, last one. Does this teaching lead to the oppression and abuse of women? No. It leads to the biblical view of womanhood and manhood that's going to free men and women to live in a way that glorifies God most and will inevitably bring most joy in the house and within the church. So while there are many, and, and there are, just like where there, there is with many arguments, there are people that take views and they distort them. And there'll be those who take the complementary and take some type of hyper view and say women can't do anything. But that's not right. That's not biblical. And so we want to always push back against that. Um, a true biblical understanding is not going to see more strife, but it's going to see greater unity at home, greater unity within the church, and more proclamation of the gospel. Um, Again, these are tough questions. I'm going to put up three PDF books um, on the blog that's on our website that you can go and download. Um, One of them is titled uh, 50 Questions About Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's 50 questions. They're short. It's like 100 pages total. um, But when you think 50 questions, it's, it's like one or two pages per question. Sometimes it's a lot smaller than that. And so we're going to put those up this week uh, just to simply help you better wrestle with what it is to be um, a man and what it is to be a woman and and how do we embrace those things. So those will be up this week. Um, If you have other questions, I encourage you, come ask me. Uh, I'm growing in this area too, and it's something sometimes we just need to think about, we need to pray about, we need to wrestle through, and we need to always do so with a sense of humility and love for one another. Um, So I'm going to pray, and the team is going to lead us in one other song, and I believe the ushers are going to come forward. Uh, Did you already come forward? They already came forward. That's good. You guys are on top of it. That's awesome. So I'm just going to pray. Father, we love you, and so glad that you know all things that are happening and that you are sovereign. Lord, I just pray, even as we've talked about these, these these few questions here, as we wrestle with this, inevitably this will be something that's we talk about later in the day. Help us to do so in the context of your word. Let us not say this is what culture says and therefore. But let us come to your word and say, what does the Bible say? And may our prayer that you would conform our hearts and our minds to your word. And God, I know this is a struggle. I know that there are many things, scenarios that are going through our head and, and what does this mean? But God, help us to understand your word. Give us understanding through your spirit. And may we together walk along with each other in humility, with love for one another and for your glory. And we trust that you give us understanding. Thank you for the distinctive roles of men and women. Thank you that men are strong, that women are strong, and that we complement 
ways that we desperately need. Thank you that you have designed us in such a way that our mere living together at home and in the church is a means of proclaiming your gospel. And may we always uphold that picture. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.